Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh, producer here at Realm. A new episode of Ominous Thrill is ready for your ears. It's Advice After Dark. Late night radio host Bella Donna delivers extreme advice to the delight and horror of her audience until a creepy listener forces her to confront the brutal consequences of her show. Here's a preview. Welcome to my live stream, Bella. Say hello to everyone. What do you want? Click the link. Watch along. I'm not clicking links from psychos. You put that trash on the radio every night and I'm the psycho. You sound like you need help. I'm not one of your fake callers. My show is very, very real. Do you want to know what it's called? No, I don't. It's called Belladonna Gets What's Coming. Starring you. What? It's really starring me. But it's all about you. And you'd be surprised how many people want to watch you. Get what's coming. I called the police. They'll be here any minute. Yeah, well, we should be done before they get here. Find Ominous Thrill out now, everywhere you listen. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The Silent Wall In 2018, something happened in the desert near Kodachrome Basin State Park. And even though I was there, I don't know what to call that something. I don't know how to categorize what occurred that night. In the press, it's been referred to as everything from a tragedy sparked by collective hysteria to a supernatural revenge killing. Whether either of those assertions are accurate, I can't say. It might be disappointing to hear that the sole surviving witness to these events doesn't know how to better describe them than by reading you newspaper headlines, but some things are just beyond explanation. And what happened at the Silent Wall is one of those things. It can't be condensed down into a digestible little summary. All I can tell you is what I experienced. And what I experienced was this. Within a one-week period, in June of 2018, I had both graduated from college and been dumped by my girlfriend. The way these two events contrasted and somehow oddly even complemented each other was a sensation I couldn't bear. I felt like everything that had given structure to my plans for the future had ended. I had no idea what to do next. I found myself pushing harder and harder to fill my time with things that would occupy my mind. Things that would sterilize my consciousness so I didn't have to think about that giant mystery that was my future. It was probably the worst time in my life for me to meet Crisis and Samira. It was the time when their lifestyle would seem most attractive to me. When I would be most willing to overlook the potential consequences of what they did. 
When I met them, I was walking home from a lonely night at the bar, just focusing on the blurry patch of sidewalk in front of me. I had taken a shortcut through Washington Square, on which stood a towering old Salt Lake County building. I came around the corner and was startled by the presence of two people wearing ski masks and climbing harnesses. They were lowering themselves down from the face of the building, and ended up touching down right in front of me. If I hadn't been so drunk, I might have been scared. But it didn't take me long to realize that these weren't criminals as much as just climbers. Hardly acknowledging my presence, they set about packing their gear, before taking a moment to review the footage on the GoPro cameras they had mounted to their heads. I realized, standing there, that I recognized these people. Their names were Crisis and Samira. They were a pair of climbers that had a relatively large following on social media. They got most of their traction on the YouTube videos they published, which showed them climbing various off-limits structures and formations, both man-made and natural. They climbed church steeples, dams, monuments. A week before, I'd watched a video of them climbing the famous Kennecott Garfield Smelter, a 1,200-foot-tall smokestack in the city of Magna. Like most of their videos, it was a condensed version of the climb, showing various parts of the process, from sneaking onto the property at 3.30 in the morning, to their eventual ascent through the clouds, before the hair-raising moment when they're clinging to the peak of the massive smokestack and the Salt Lake Valley looks to be impossibly far below them. At double the height of the Seattle Space Needle, the Kennecott Garfield smelter offers a view that's hard to comprehend. But even at the apex of this massive smokestack, Crisis and Samira could be heard on camera, cracking jokes and snickering to each other. I was ashamed to admit, standing there next to the old county building, that I was starstruck. I told myself to keep my drunken mouth shut, but a few seconds later out tumbled the words, Hey, you guys are... I paused awkwardly, and then decided to go with, I'm a big fan. I love your videos. They turned to look at me faces still obscured by the black-knit ski masks. In all their videos, as well as all their appearances on social media, they had never revealed their faces. This, I guessed, was done because their videos contained footage of blatantly unlawful behavior. But even without being able to see their faces, I could still tell the two apart. I knew that Samira was the female, the shorter one with the slight build, she wore her hair in a dark braid that ran down her neck. And Crisis was the male, of a slightly larger build. I didn't know what his real name was, or why he had chosen to call himself Crisis, but in that moment I was more preoccupied with his partner. Samira wore a tight black t-shirt, bearing the unreadable name of some death metal band. Her arms were toned and peppered with tattoos, and her hands were small but tough and calloused. I couldn't help but wonder what her face looked like. Do you climb? Crisis asked me suddenly. Yeah, I said, by which I meant I had done some top roping. I helped them carry their gear to their car and told them I looked forward to seeing their next video. I was surprised when they invited me to come climbing with them the following day. 
In the weeks that followed, I spent almost every day with Crisis and Samira. I had nothing but time on my hands, and they didn't seem to mind having me around. Hanging out with them was like a crash course in renegade climbing, though I was surprised to see how seriously they took safety measures. Some safety measures, at least. They taught me a lot, and my climbing improved considerably. Sometimes I would climb with them, donning a mask of my own if there were cameras around. Other times I would keep watch and film them from the ground, gathering footage for their next video. The more I hung out with them, the more entranced I became with Samira. As we became friends, I of course got to see them without masks on, and I don't think I'll ever forget the moment I first saw Samira's face. She was attractive, but in a subtle way. She didn't have the face of a supermodel, but she had mischievous eyes that glowed hazel, and a way of speaking that made sarcasm sound like sage advice. It didn't take much time spent with her for me to forget all about the girlfriend that had dumped me a few weeks before. At first, I was worried that Samira and Crisis were a thing, but as it turned out, women weren't really his cup of tea. He was in an on-again, off-again relationship with a guy from Colorado, but he didn't seem all that interested in settling down. The only thing Crisis cared about was climbing. Some would argue, and it would be hard to disagree, that he cared about it to a fault. There were more than a few internet crusaders who were against what Crisis and Samira did. Whether they were opposed to their climbing on private property, or their climbing routes that had been marked as off-limits, or just their general lawlessness, there was no shortage of naysayers responding to their content. Just recently, there had been an outcry after they climbed the west face of the Fairview Dome in Yosemite an area that had been closed off to protect the dwindling peregrine falcon population that lived there. It would be fair of you to say that spending time with these people was clearly not in my best interest. And the fact that I stuck around is evidence of some moral failing on my part. That may very well be the case. I'm in no position to excuse my actions. But if you could understand how intoxicating it was for me at that time in my life, to be around those people. You'd know how it feels to find meaning where there once was a void. Because climbing with them did more for me than just occupy my restless mind. It gave me more than just an exciting hobby. On some level, it gave me a new way of living, a new way of seeing the world. You see, Crisis and Samira weren't just climbing things to climb them. There was a whole philosophy behind what they did. Granted, their beliefs may not have been as deep and nuanced as someone like Michel Foucault or Jean-Paul Sartre, but there was at least something there. They weren't vapid or superficial, even if they were bleak enough to more than make up for it. What Crisis and Samira believed was that we're living in the end times. They saw the depletion of natural resources the changing of the climate, the breakdown of international relations, and the steady worsening of the economy as contributing factors to what would eventually do us all in. Maybe not this year, they would say. Maybe not even next year. But sometime. 
sometime soon. They weren't particularly dramatic about this view. They didn't promote anarchy or chaos, though crisis did occasionally shoplift. But because they saw human civilization as being hopelessly doomed, nothing was sacred to crisis in Samaria. Nothing represented anything other than an obstacle to them. Everything on the planet was made to be climbed. When the world's power systems crumble, when the supply chains break down, when humankind faces its imminent demise, who then will be left to care about climbing regulations? The planet had been sucked dry of resources and value by the powerful few, Opportunities enjoyed by previous generations were no longer on the table. Back in the 70s, Crisis once said, you could earn enough to buy a home just by working at a gas station or driving a cab. But all that's gone now. There's nothing left for us. Needless to say, Crisis and Samira had no real career ambitions. Their view of the future was obviously bleak, but there was something about it that made me feel strangely free. Being around people who weren't hindered by the arbitrary terms of society did more for my spirit than anything I had encountered in a long time. My desire to climb the corporate ladder was replaced by a desire simply to climb. My fears of the future were not sated by my finding a steady income, they were obliterated by my completely rejecting the role that had been cut out for me. I let go of everything that made me feel safe, and in a way I felt more free than I ever had. So was that it? Was that the reason for my cult-like devotion to this merry band of outlaw climbers? Or was it just my attraction to Samira that made me so willing to follow them? Perhaps it's both. I can't really say. All I know is that in July of that year, they invited me to go on a trip to northern Arizona, and I did not hesitate to say yes. It's obviously a moment that I think back on. I wish that I had said no, that I had grown disillusioned with their antics and moved on. But the truth is, I would have followed them anywhere. I just didn't know that the place I was following them to was hell. We left Salt Lake City early in the morning on July 10th. Our objective, as far as I knew, was to climb the Desert View Watchtower, which stood on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. The structure itself was only 70 feet tall, but we figured the fact that it stood on the edge of a massive canyon wall would make for some pretty good footage. Whether Crisis and Samira ever planned on going as far south as the Grand Canyon, I can't say. All I know is we never made it past the Silent Wall, no matter how badly I wish we had. For the first couple hours, the road trip was uneventful. We made our way south on Interstate 15, watching the Wasatch Mountains disappear from view as the terrain grew more arid and barren. Granite boulders and aspen trees gave way to rolling red rocks and cacti. I was sitting in the back seat of the van with Samira while Crisis drove. As we made our way south through the small town of Hatch, Crisis turned to Samira. With a peculiar look in his eye, he said, 
Somebody's God is going to be real mad about this. I thought it was a strange thing to say, but basically everything Crisis said was strange. Somebody's God is going to be real mad about this. It seemed like something he would say if we were planning to climb a church steeple. As far as I knew, the Desert View Watchtower wasn't a building of any religious significance. It had been constructed in the 1930s to house art and offer views to tourists. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure most of the garden variety gods have already blacklisted me, Samira said. What do you mean, though? I asked. Who's God? I rested my elbows on my knees and stuck my head up next to the driver's seat. At that range, I could smell Crisis. He smelled to me the way I imagine a Viking would smell when they were out raiding some helpless village in Europe. It was a smell of dirt and sweat and fearless indifference. He's just rambling, Samira said. Sometimes on long drives, he says things just hoping for the chance to pontificate. You know what I mean, Crisis said. Everything is a god to somebody, whether they worship Jesus or the dollar or some movement and culture. If you think about it, that means every building is a church in a way. Every structure is a symbol of someone's devotion. See what I mean, Samira said. I wasn't exactly convinced by his answer, but I didn't feel like provoking him any further lest he respond with a 40-minute monologue about the futile human desire to be immortalized through monuments and infrastructure, or the symbolic meaning of climbing to the top of a phallic edifice. I sat back and Samira laid her head on my shoulder. We watched the blazing desert as it flew past in the window. I felt at peace with her sitting next to me. Even if I didn't really know where we were going... I at least knew that I was going there with her. She lived with such a natural confidence, handled everything with such ease. On some level, I suppose I thought nothing could really go wrong when I was with her. When I think back on that drive, it's those moments that I think most about. Those last few minutes of Samira's head laying on my shoulder. That brief period of contentment that ended the moment the van turned off the highway. We were somewhere to the south of Kodachrome Basin, and Crisis began to steer the van down a hilly dirt road. I remember being confused. We hadn't even crossed the border into Arizona. We were supposed to be driving all the way around to the other side of the Grand Canyon before we got off the highway. Where are we going? I asked. Just want to make a quick stop to check out a crag, Crisis said. The van bounced along a ruddy dirt road, rounding a corner at the base of a hill. When we got around to the other side, I could see a single wall of stone, surrounded by rolling desert plains. Forming a rough, rectangular shape, the cliff looked to be about 200 feet tall. It looked out of place there, against the red desert backdrop, because its stone face was a remarkably pale and metallic color. It looked like a massive vein of quartz that had been meticulously chiseled out of a rocky hillside. I stared at the monolithic stone for a few long seconds before I finally realized what it was. I had heard about the silent wall a few times throughout my life, but I didn't have any more than a passing interest in it. 
In fact, I wasn't even convinced that it was authentic. But as the van got close to the imposing wall of stone, and I could see the anomalous carvings in it, I felt an almost primal response, as if, on a subconscious level, I knew I was looking at something miraculous. The irregular rock formation that would come to be known as the Silent Wall was first documented in 1886. Two brothers, who were known to be prospecting in the southern Utah area, wrote about the discovery of a large stone wall containing unusual petroglyphs. The symbols consisted of geometric spirals and hook-shaped characters spaced at odd intervals. Along with the symbols were etchings of humanoid figures, their backs elongated and sloping at grotesque angles. Because of the high prevalence of native petroglyphs in the area, there was little doubt given as to the authenticity of the petroglyphs. By the early 1930s, though, experts in the field were beginning to raise serious questions about where the symbols had come from. Some of the most famous archaeologists of the time voiced their belief that the symbols were not consistent with the language of any known tribes that inhabited the area. This admission led to untold confusion within academia. In the years that followed, a litany of up-and-coming researchers wrote papers and put forth theories. Everyone had their own idea about where the engravings had come from. But no one could provide conclusive enough evidence for the theory to stick. Nor could anyone say what the symbols meant. Because the geometric characters were organized into neat lines, it was assumed that they spelled a message of some kind. Whatever that message was, though, it had never been successfully translated. Noted archaeologist Alfred Vincent Kidder once supposedly commented, Whatever it is this wall has to say, we simply cannot hear it. It was this comment that led to it being unofficially dubbed the Silent Wall. Because of the conspicuous nature of the carvings, it was suggested by some that the reason they hadn't been recognized as the work of any native tribe was because natives hadn't made them. Some postulated that the brothers who claimed to have discovered the wall were actually the ones who had made the engravings. But this theory didn't gain much traction either. Most of the engravings appeared on the upper half of the wall, with some of them as high as 186 feet off the ground. The Banhart brothers owned chisels and various mining tools, but had no means of constructing the scaffolding that would be necessary to carve something that high up on the face of a cliff. More recently, carbon dating was used in an effort to establish the origin of the carvings. Preliminary results stated that the carvings had been made 40,000 years ago, but some scholars have contested the results, asserting that it would be impossible, as it predates any known settlement in North America. When the van came to a stop near the base of the wall, Chrysus jumped out giddily, his smile beaming in the hot desert air. Within a few seconds, he was stepping into his climbing harness. Samira and I stepped out of the van as well, but we weren't so quick to action. As we stood between the van and the daunting precipice, I turned to Chrysus. You're not really gonna... I began, but stopped myself. Of course they were. Artifacts and petroglyphs were no more sacred to them than church steeples or smokestacks. Are you kidding? Chrysus said. 
It's perfect. How could I not? I just, I don't think it's a good idea, I said. Stop being so sentimental, he replied, laying his big meaty hand on my shoulder. All that stuff you've been conditioned to care about, it's all equally pointless. With that, he grabbed his gear bag and walked over to the face of the wall, where he stood and looked up at the eerie sloping figures and symbols that were carved into it. I turned to Samira. Don't do this, I said. I had an inexplicably bad feeling. I wondered if they knew I would feel this way. If that was their reason for keeping their plans to climb the silent wall hidden from me. Because they knew I would protest. It wasn't just that I was worried about them damaging the petroglyphs, either. It was more than that. I had a lingering sense that beyond the obvious potential consequences of defacing a native monument, there was another set of consequences. A set of consequences that was rooted not in society or the law, but in something ethereal. I knew next to nothing about archaeology or native languages, but I felt that on an intrinsic level, the symbols that were on that wall communicated a very clear message. And that message was not a greeting. Just looking at the oddly spaced geometric characters, I felt certain that they spelled some kind of warning. Samira kissed me and then lugged her pack of gear over to the wall. The kiss happened so fast it left me stunned, and perhaps that was her intent. Unable to persuade them not to climb the wall, I was left to film and keep watch for park rangers. I was nervous, knowing climbers could be fined up to $20,000 for defacing archaeological sites. But the feeling that persisted was my sense of unease. My suspicion that what Crisis and Samira were about to do was going to put them in danger. I grabbed the tripod out of the van and began to mount the camera on it, cursing my passive resistance. No sooner had I gotten the camera set up than they began their ascent of the steep, rocky pitch. The route they had chosen was along a fairly straight and narrow crack that bisected the lower half of the wall before breaking off into a series of smaller cracks towards the top. They climbed slowly, anchoring themselves with cams along the way. Each of them had a walkie-talkie clipped to their harness so we could keep in touch as they progressed. Through the lens of the camera, I watched them climb slowly up the sheer face of the cliff. I could see sweat glistening on their backs as they stopped to dip their hands in their chalk bags. They looked confident on the wall, but I was a far cry from being at ease. I peered over my shoulder, expecting to see the familiar white and green SUV of a park ranger but saw only the open, barren desert. As I turned back to the wall, something stopped me. I noticed almost immediately that Crisis and Samira had stopped moving. They were frozen in place, just past halfway up the wall. Coincidentally, the point at which they were stopped was right on top of one of the rows of symbols. The myriad intersecting lines and tapering hook-shaped characters sat flatly against the wall, while the pair of climbers experienced an apparent paralysis just above them. You guys, are you okay? I called on the walkie-talkie. But there was no response. No sign that they'd even acknowledged the question. 
I watched them through the viewfinder of the camera for a few tense seconds, waiting for some sign of life. Suddenly, I heard Samira scream, Stop! or Stop it! But I could see nothing that could have provoked such a response. She was just stuck there, gripping the wall, appearing to stare straight ahead at it. You guys, what's going on? I shouted into the walkie-talkie. I panned the camera over to Crisis, but he hadn't moved either. His body was tense, gripping the crack with both hands, poised as if he were staring straight into it, as if he could see something in there, buried deep within the rock. Then, without warning, both climbers seemed to snap out of the trance they were in. They resumed climbing, but they did it with such a robotic sensibility that I thought for a second they were messing with me. They moved sluggishly and without grace, but then, after another minute or so, they resumed a normal pace. Okay, guys, I said, what the hell was that? What do you mean? Crisis replied, his voice chirping over the walkie-talkie. Come on, I said. You just stopped. You weren't even climbing. Says the guy who's standing on the ground, Samira chimed in. Samira, you screamed, I said. You yelled stop. You don't remember that? There was silence on the line. And then I heard Crisis say, let's just get to the top of this fucking thing and get out of here. After which, the line went silent again. Their responses made me suspect that they were aware of what had just happened, but were for some reason unwilling to talk about it. They were perhaps too frightened or confused by it. Instead of cheerily claiming everything was fine, they clammed up and refused to respond. Either they were pulling my leg or something was seriously wrong. After reaching the apex of the cliff, they hoisted themselves on top and stood, surveying the desert landscape below. I remember thinking there was a surprising lack of excitement in their forms. Granted, I could only see them through the lens of the camera, but I had seen them summit enough formations and structures to know that a successful climb was usually accompanied by giddy, enthusiastic body language. Now, though, they just stood there, sullen and motionless. I felt a momentary sense of panic, thinking for some reason that they were going to jump and splatter their bodies across the rocky earth at the foot of the cliff. But instead, they just picked up their gear and began their descent. I had never been more confused or unsettled by one of their climbs. I thought about the footage I had shot of the paralysis that had overtaken them. I wondered what they would say when I showed it to them. Wondered what Samira would say when she watched her GoPro footage, which must have gotten the audio of her blood-curdling screams. Was it possible that they were just putting me on, making fun of what Crisis referred to as my sentimentality? When they touched back down on the ground, I walked over to meet them. Their faces were long and pallid, their eyes distant. What happened up there? I asked. When they didn't respond, I tried, look... Are you guys messing with me? They stopped. In an even, stern voice, Crisis said, Everything's fine. Just relax. He went on walking and then hollered, Come on, let's go make camp. The sun was setting when we left the silent wall. We drove a few dozen miles before stopping to find a place to sleep for the night. I wanted to ask them more about their bizarre behavior on the rock but their attitudes were for some reason verging on hostility, so I decided to hold my tongue. 
I still didn't understand why they had grown so vague and distant. Why they weren't celebrating after a successful climb that they drove hours to get to. I sighed to myself, gazing out the window at the hot, unforgiving earth. I willed myself to let go of my concerns. Nothing bad had happened, I reasoned. They'd climbed up the stupid rock and gotten back down safe. Ultimately, I decided their strange attitudes were neither my business nor my problem. You might think that I was being willfully ignorant here, that surely I'd have seen some sign of what was coming. Surely, if I wasn't trying to be so amicable all the time, I'd have taken note of the fact that there was something wrong with these people. But I didn't see it. I'd had a bad feeling, yes, but that's not much to go off. Maybe I was trying to be an idealist. Maybe I did want to think everything was fine. But it's not like I was ignoring red flags as they were going up all around me. It really seemed like some semblance of normalcy had returned when we got camp set up. A recent thunderstorm had soaked all the firewood, but after we dumped half a canister of gasoline on the fire pit, it lit right up. I sat down with Samira and we drank beers and looked out at the constellations as they took shape in the burgeoning darkness. Crisis, who had been the most quiet since we got back to camp, signed off at about 10 p.m., but Samira and I went on talking by the fire. She still wasn't her usual sardonic self, but she was responsive and lucid. She was talking to me about platonic solids for some reason. In a brief pause between words, a gut-wrenching sound erupted from inside Crisis's tent. It was the sound of a wretched dry heave, like there was something altogether heinous inside of him that he very badly needed to get out. I turned to Samira in a moment of panic. What I was looking for in her gaze, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe I wanted guidance or acknowledgement or support. Maybe I wanted her to tell me what to do, how to fix whatever was going on, whatever was causing that grisly sound coming from inside Crisis's tent. But I found nothing like that in her face. Instead, I was astonished to see that Samira was crying. I was astounded to see her cry. It wasn't an act I'd even thought her capable of. What's wrong? I said. What happened up there on that wall today? In the space that elapsed as I waited for her to answer, I noticed something tip over in her lap. I thought at first that she had accidentally knocked her beer over. But as I moved to help her, I realized that she had in fact tipped a gasoline canister over in her lap. I could smell it after a second, and became acutely aware of the danger it posed in that proximity to the fire. Samira, I said, what are you doing? And then she finally spoke. I saw it, she said simply, still crying, still pouring the gasoline into her lap, soaking her jeans. But now she was standing, now she was turning to face me, repeating herself, I saw it, she was saying, I saw it. I wish, so badly, that I could say I lunged for her, that in a moment of valor and audacity I wrapped her in my arms and yanked her away from the fire. But I just stood there, halfway between light and darkness, watching her inch towards the bright, crackling fire. When I finally did reach out and try and pull her away, it was too late. 
I stepped towards her and grabbed hold of her arm, but she just sat down right in the center of the fire pit. The second her gasoline-soaked body touched the fire, it erupted into a roaring inferno. I pulled at her furiously, but when the flames began to lap at my face, I tore free and crawled away. Samira did not scream as she burned to death. She did not cry out or flail. She just sat stoically as all the hair burned off her head. As her skin began to char and peel away in flakes of ash. I tore the lid off a jug of water and tossed it on the fire. It wasn't enough to put Samira out though. It just made a massive cloud of steam rise from her brittle charred flesh. It's impossible to put into words just how it feels to watch a living, breathing person transform under the influence of fire. The exact moment that the life went out of her was hard to pinpoint. All I know is that by the time I got the fire extinguished by tossing shovelfuls of dirt on it, she had been torched beyond recognition. I knelt next to the fire pit. I felt like I needed to puke but for some reason was unable to. I didn't want to look at her body, didn't want to touch it. I could smell her, and that alone was such an assault to my senses I didn't think I could handle any further acknowledgement of what she had become. Taking my phone from my pocket, I dialed 911 before I had the chance to change my mind. When the dispatcher asked what happened, I managed only the words, Fire, and she was... When she asked where we were, I told the dispatcher we were camping at Sheep Creek, near Cottonwood Canyon Road. The dispatcher told me to stay calm and that she was sending help. Suddenly remembering the agonizing sound I'd heard coming from Crisis's tent a few moments before, I hung up the phone and got to my feet. I took several hobbling steps toward his tent as my bearings slowly came back to me. Crisis, I said standing just outside his tent. Samira's. But I still couldn't say it. I still couldn't put words to what had just happened. I waited for Crisis to say something, but he didn't. I'm coming in, I said. I unzipped the tent's fabric door and peeled it back. Inside, it was dark and still. I couldn't make out any details, couldn't detect any movement. The whole campsite had been plunged into darkness when I had extinguished the fire. I pulled my cell phone back out and turned on the flashlight, pointing it through the opening of the tent. Crisis was on his hands and knees in the center of the tent, looking down at a puddle of blood and bile. He rose slightly and looked at me, the remnants of bloody vomit still clinging to the corners of his mouth. What happened on that wall today? I asked him. A long silence elapsed before he finally said, It puts something in me. Just like it puts something in Samira. Okay, I said, trying to instill calmness and reason. It's gonna be okay. Help is coming, you understand? He didn't respond to this, just gazed absently down at his abdomen. I can feel it in there, he said. It's showing me things. What do you mean? I asked. What's showing you things? As the words left my mouth, I noticed that there appeared to be something in his gut. There was a rough triangular protrusion pressing against the skin of his stomach. 
It was about the size of a fist, and I couldn't understand what it was or how it had gotten inside of him. Do you want to know what it's showing me? He asked. Crisis, I said, my hand beginning to tremble as I tried to hold the light steady. Just try to relax, okay? Help is on the way. It's showing me what's coming, he said, apparently unconcerned with what I was saying. It's showing me what will happen. Not just to you and me. It's showing me what will happen everywhere. It was in that moment that I finally noticed a large folding knife in his right hand. Do you want to know what's coming? He asked. Do you want to know what's going to happen? Crisis, please, I said. Before I could get another word in, he pressed the knife against his gut and cut a large crescent slit from hip to hip. Immediately, blood began to pour from his abdomen, trickling onto the floor where he knelt. His arms fell slack at his sides, and he dropped the knife on the ground. The thing is, he said, somehow still managing to speak, we were right. The world is ending, just not in the way you think. As he spoke, I stood there in a kind of helpless paralysis. I watched his fingers slide in through the incision, watched his hands disappear into the bloody, gaping hole before pulling out his stomach and holding it in front of himself as if to present it to someone. The movement dislodged his small intestine, which was pulled through the hole as well and began to unravel on the floor of the tent. Do you want to know what will become of flesh in the future? He asked, stooping slightly to pick the knife back up. Do you want to know what will happen to the human body? Or do you want to wait and see it unfold for yourself? I watched him take the knife and slice through the lining of his stomach as he cradled it in his hand. Watched him reach inside and reveal a large, pale stone, the shape of a tetrahedron, a three-sided pyramid. He managed to hold the triangular stone in one shaky hand for a few seconds before it tumbled from his grasp and fell to the ground. A moment later, he collapsed to the ground as well. The puddle of blood that he fell into was big enough to reach every corner of the tent. I took one last look at the small pile of organs and the impossible pyramid-shaped rock that laid at his side, before stumbling backwards a few steps and crashing on the desert floor. When the first responders arrived, I was apparently in a kind of fugue state. I don't remember them arriving at the scene or interacting with me. The next memory I have is of waking up the following day, handcuffed to a hospital bed. The police were clearly worried about me waking up and running off before I explained myself, which, when they noticed I was awake, was exactly what they asked me to do. Over a series of interviews, I explained to them what had happened. I showed them the footage of Crisis and Samira's climb, and told them, with as much detail as I could recall, exactly how everything preceding it unfolded. They were obviously skeptical, but as the autopsies were conducted, they found that the evidence was surprisingly consistent with my story. They still couldn't explain how Crisis, whose name it turned out was Oscar Wilkes, had managed to stay conscious long enough 
to slice open and examine the contents of his own stomach. When they looked into the matter of the stone tetrahedron he had extracted from his gut, they were equally perplexed. After examining Samira's stomach, they found that hers, too, contained a bizarre geometric rock, though hers was an octahedron, measuring nearly four inches from end to end. One of the detectives told me that there was no way she could have ingested it, that it would have never fit down her esophagus. I assume he wanted me to provide some kind of response to this, but I didn't know what to tell him, and I don't know what to tell anyone else, either. Since the evidence validated my story, however unlikely it was, I was never tried or even really suspected of any crimes. I guess the police didn't really know what to do with me. I did cooperate with their investigation as best as I could, and because of that I somehow managed to convince them to keep my name out of the press. In all the articles about what happened, I'm referred to simply as an unnamed witness. Not that I would recommend reading any of the articles about what happened. They're not bad, per se. They just don't paint a very complete picture of what happened. Because, aside from the police and my family, and only a few of my close friends, nobody's ever heard this story. Not from me, at least. I've always told myself that the reason I avoid telling it is because I'm ashamed to have ended up in that situation. Ashamed to have stood idly by while my own friends killed and mutilated themselves. But I think the real reason that I don't talk about what happened at the silent wall is because I can't bear to remember. I'm still haunted by the things that Crisis said. He told me that the stone had shown him what was coming, that it had told him he was right, that the world was ending. I don't want to know what kind of apocalyptic visions he was seeing, or whether they will soon come true. But nothing I do will ever cleanse my memory of the image of him kneeling there, holding his own bloody stomach in his hand, asking me, Do you want to know what will become of flesh in the future? Hey, uh, if you're still listening, I want to first say thank you. I really, really appreciate everybody that has checked out the show and listened and written to me. Um, I also want to let you know that I have a Patreon. If you sign up for a $3 donation, you get to hear every episode a few days early. And you also get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long. It's kind of a cosmic horror uh, slash thriller mystery. It follows a burned-out journalist that becomes obsessed with an unexplained missing persons case. You can hear the first 30 minutes of the audiobook on the episode titled Solace. And if you like it, definitely check it out. Subscribe. Uh, you can listen to the Patreon feed, obviously, on the Patreon mobile app, or you can listen on whatever podcast app you like. There's a private RSS feed that you can plug into whatever app you use. And uh, yeah, the book is broken up into sections, so it's a little easier to keep track of where you're at. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash A-C-E 
P-H-A-L-E. There is also a link in the show notes of this episode and in the bio of the show that you can click on. So, yeah, that's all from me. Um, If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating or a review. And, yeah, thank you so much. I seriously appreciate you guys. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.